It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. And with that familiar music, you are listening to Cheap Talk with Trick Chat. We have a very special episode today. Say hello, BJ. Hello. And uh, BJ, you said something off air. I think it's going to ring true. This talk that we had with Brian Beebe, who played with Robin Zander in a duo called Zander and Kent before Robin joined Cheap Trick, it's just great. Ken and I enjoyed it very much. You have to be a Cheap Trick nerd to to be interested in this stuff. But if you're a huge Cheap Trick fan, you're going to love this conversation we have with Brian. Uh, The stories he tells about Robin growing up and everything, it was was just great. I was getting goosebumps as he was telling some of these stories. So, But like I said, this is for Cheap Trick nerds right here, but it's great stuff. And we're also going to play some cool tunes along the way. And... uh little something that comes up during the show rick would probably say let them eat cake here's that interview this is brian Beebe of xander and kent and you are listening to cheap talk check joined today by somebody from the past somebody who was there at the beginning someone who worked alongside mr robin zander and played an important part in cheap tricks history we have mr brian Beebe on the line and brian would you like to tell us a little bit of why cheap trick fans should know who you are Robin and I went to high school together. We were singing in the uh, high school choir together. And Zeno, too, the first uh, singer of uh, Cheap Trick was in the choir, too. They were both a year behind me in school, but as soon as Robin graduated, we went up to the Wisconsin Dells and uh, played as a duo 
two acoustic guitars and two vocals for for four summers in the off season we we went places like you know, Colorado and and we played a lot of uh, colleges around uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota and Illinois. In 1974, uh, Cheap Trick had actually asked Rob Robin to sing in 73, but uh, he couldn't go because he had a signed contract to play again in the in the Dells with with me. So they got Zeno, and I think he was recommended by Robin. Because, uh, Brian, I think we need to back up a little bit and let's talk about okay. you. Whether it's Lennon and McCartney or. B.B. and Xander, or Simmons and Stanley, or whoever we you're ca- talking we about. We called it Xander and Kent, Xander my and middle name is Kent. And Kent. And well, I didn't particularly like B.B. at the time, so... <laughs> and everybody called us Robin and Brian, or Brian and Robin. Well, let's let's and, take uh, it back a little bit. Let's, let's kind of okay. go back to the first time. Let's talk about the kind of music you liked, and about the age you were, and when you became aware that there was this other guy named Robin Xander on the planet, you know... Just go back to school. It did start earlier than that. I, we were both uh, hit real hard by the British invasion and the Beatles and stuff. Uh-huh. But uh, the first time I ever laid eyes on them was at a spelling bee, a fifth grade spelling bee. <laughs> and uh, I, the way I remember it is that he had a white shirt with a black string tie, a bolo tie, and, and a red sport coat and a, his arm around two different girls at the same time. And my my mother was the secretary in the great at Robin's grade school, and he actually uh, would sing over the um, school PA after the announcement. Sometimes he had a beautiful soprano voice, even when he was little. And then we didn't get to. I went and saw a few of his bands. You know, we everybody had a band at the time, and we'd go uh, check out each other's bands and stuff. Really, our relationship or friendship didn't really start until high school. You mentioned Robin wearing the 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 thin tie with the red jacket with two girls on the arm. It, it doesn't yeah. seem like much has changed. Yeah, well, <laughs> he, yeah, he was uh, he was a lot of showbiz, you know, at the time, his whole life, you know. We're both kind of social animals that way. Neither of us was, was too awful uh, happy at home, and uh, and so when we got out in, in public and, and could sing and put a smile on people's faces, we just loved to do that, you know. How early did you guys start playing guitar? Oh, uh, well, I started when I was nine, and then the, the Beatles came uh, when I was 12, so I actually could play a little bit and, and was able to play their songs and, and, and get a lot of attention that way, so it was all good. And, and I think he started about the same time. His dad was a musician, and he showed him some, some things on the keyboard. And, Right, his dad was a jazz musician, right? Yeah, he was a jazz musician. Just kind of an old-timey entertainer, you know, that would uh, play in bars and and, uh, and drink. (laughs) He was a a big-time drinker. This was in Loves Park, Illinois, where you guys grew up, right? He was actually in what they call North Park. He was probably a, a mile and a half from my house. But we, as soon as I got a driver's license, we saw quite a lot of each other, and we'd get together at my house or his house and, and uh, play Beatles songs and, and Bee Gees songs. And, and then it became, uh, uh, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That's what we played a lot of, uh, played in the Dells. Harmony songs, we were real good at it. To Major Tom 
ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pill and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown engines on Three Two Check ignition one. and may God's love be with you This is ground control to major towns You've really made the grand And the paper I'm stepping through the door And I'm floating in a most peculiar way And the stars look very different today For here am I sitting in my tin can Far above the world When it earth is blue And there's nothing I can do He was the lead singer. I blended in pretty well with him, and then harmonies and vocals were our, our, our forte, you know. What was the uh, impetus of you guys looking at one another and going, here's someone else that I can do this with? Well, we were both in the tenor section of the high school choir, and uh, and when we weren't singing choir music, we we quickly found out we... We both had a common interest in the Beatles, and when you sang uh, choir music, you, you, we always liked to go into the bathroom where all that tile was, and it sounded like a, ah, a yeah. you know, a, an echo chamber a lot of times. And we'd and we'd sing uh, things that weren't choir music too. And when we found out how much we cared about the the Beatles, uh, we got together on our off time and played some, you know. Well, it's one thing to sit in your bedroom and realize that you can harmonize and play a few songs what made you guys say we could do this and what made you go to the wisconsin dales and approach them how, how did that work out well we, we played a little bit in rockford uh where we were both from but we met a a friend of a friend basically who was working in the dales and and he thought we would go over good up there because it's a, you know it's a very entertainment oriented area a vacation destination you know uh-huh. and so we went up there and uh, and banged around and auditioned at a few places and uh, we got hired in the downtown a downtown bar there and started working six nights a week six hours a night the first summer and then the second summer we were about to say about the same schedule six we get we had saturday nights off because it was town was busy enough without having live music to draw anybody in the, so and uh-huh. um, we played four years. We got pretty good as a duo. And then we remained friends to this day. You know, we 
see each other. He's he's always gone. That's what's been to our friendship, you know. He's just 300 nights a year he was someplace else, you know, for a lot of years. Well, the guys don't seem to know how to take an actual vacation because when he's not no. working in Cheap Trick, he's now doing the Robin Zander band, so it's yeah. just continual, continual. couple pictures of the duo of Xander and Kent. Mm-hmm. What do you think about those fashions when you look back? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were we were fashionable. You know, uh, there's a, a few CDs of us floating around. Uh, uh, one of my good friends said, boy, you guys played a lot of oldies. And that's the first, is the first impression that he, that he uh, added on to it. He said, "Well, yeah, but those were those were new songs at the time." You know? Yeah, they weren't oldies; they were newies at the time. <laughs> yeah, so. Robin was always, you know, a step ahead of me as far as uh, finding new people, uh, new songs, and, and things like that. You know, he he really felt that I was more of a technician, and he was more of the artist, really. He was the lead singer, and I was the harmonizer, and I I played a little better than he did, so I'd play guitar and piano, and he strung on the acoustic guitar. You said you were doing Beatles and Bee Gees and Crosby, Stills and Nash. What were some of the other groups that you were covering at the time? Oh, geez, we, when we first got to the Dells, we were very young, and it was 21 to drink, and so there was a lot of older people around. We did everything from uh, Impossible Dream to uh, Homer and Jethro songs, you know, thinking we had to entertain them. You know, we had to do um, well, everything that was popular from the 60s. We we had a handle on. I we both played by ear and and could sound out songs pretty easy, and there was a lot of all-night 
parties where we would just try things on the fly, and then if it was good enough, we would throw it in the act the next night, you know? Yeah, if you had six hours to fill every night, it yeah, rough. We were often, uh, you know, the voices were, we didn't play any instrumentals, we sang every song, so it was very strainful on that. And then we'd go out and, you know, on the beach and play for parties afterwards. Even it was a, it was a lot, a lot of music, you know. Were you guys writing songs at this time? Yeah, we both wrote songs, and we played them, and we played them. You know, people were receptive to things like that. You know, it didn't matter if they didn't know it, know the song, and sometimes we'd even tell them it was an original song, and so they, other regular fans, you know, and they took to it really well. We made made some recordings of you know of ourselves and demo stuff. Of, over the years too. Do you remember there what were, any of those originals were, or um, did any of those yeah. originals become cheap trick songs? No, no, none of them became cheap trick songs. In fact, Rob and I went to uh, Great Britain a, a couple of times in '73 and trying to make some connections and and uh, get famous uh, somehow, you know. Uh-huh. And we actually met a guy in London who put us into the uh, studio and we, we recorded every song that we had written at the time, and, and he selected. Uh, one of Robin's songs and published, you know, he was a publisher and a producer, so he published this song, and when Cheap Trick started to become famous, there was a big worry over whether or not this guy would use that song against him somehow, and um, it was a good song, it was called, that was called Wait For Me, it was a slow one, but we wrote rock and roll songs and pretty ones too. That was the nice thing about the, the duo, we could... We could go from Sympathy for the Devil to uh, some of the sweetest Bee Gees songs, you know. Sung by the Bee Gees, way back.
Robin, uh, Robin used to call me all the time whenever they were in the studio. He'd, he'd say like, oh, "We did something. We got this song that was so Beatly. I thought of you. You know, every time that uh, something reminded us of the Beatles." And and I remember getting a phone call one time. And then he said, uh, "You're not going to believe who called me the other day." And I said, "Who?" And he said, "An Englishman. He's John Lennon." Oh wow! And, uh, I said, <laughs> "Wow!" And this is—he was 26 years old at this time. And I remember saying to him, "Robin, you've got all the money you can spend, and now your your idol of all time calls you up and wants you to be on their record. You know, what what else is there?" And he said. Uh, Oh, he's lucky to have us. He doesn't have a band. <laughs> yeah, he was just joking, of course. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, that was. And then they they went and and actually Rick and Bunny went and did the double fantasy with John Lennon. Yeah, that John was Lennon. Everything was in the can at the time, but they didn't use any of it except to steal some of Rick's licks. Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm losing you. But thankfully, it all came out. So you know, later. It, we all wound up with it, so that's cool. Yeah. I was the biggest Cheap Trick fan in the world for a long time because I thought Robin would eventually have an opportunity to, to uh, reach down and and pull me out of the boat, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was he's, he's always the kind of guy who was uh, taken up by whatever was in front of him at the time. He wasn't... wasn't uh, limited at all he just uh his attention span was was always a little suspect you know because he was an artiste you know and, uh, even when we were kids he he was uh you know just a step above everybody in in uh, feeling the music all those guys in cheap trick were were cut from a different cloth i mean i've been i've been watching rick nielsen and bunny and dan since i was 13 years old you know and they were always in the best bands and they were always I, I've, I've blogged a few times about some of this stuff but um, one of the first times I was ever over at, at Bunny Carlson's house well, we, were in a, we were in a band together before there was a cheap trick it was Robin and Bunny and me and, and two other guys Russ Freeman and Rick Pemberton I, I had worked at the Park District in Rockford in the summer of 1970 when I graduated from high school some jobs for a band came out of it playing these rec nights for eighth graders all over Rockford and I didn't have a band so but I was going to a junior college that fall here in Rockford and I had met Bunny skipping class in the student union playing cards and stuff and so I said well I got a singer if you got he says I can get a couple of guys and we formed this band just to play these jobs you know right but we did we did have to practice over at Bunny's house and and he was a his family is fairly wealthy beautiful place and a beautiful home and and if you went up to Bunny's room there were there were basically two things in the whole room a, a mattress on the floor and a big old-fashioned like pirate chest full of 45s and a record player and that was it you know it was just like a, <laughs> a rock and roll oasis in the middle of this beautiful home home you know there was a record player one of those old-fashioned mono record player and all the singles just thrown into this chest with no sleeves or anything, you know. Wow. That was kind of interesting. Wow. Robin was asked by the guys in Cheap Trick to be in their band, but he couldn't because he was, you guys were under contract with the Wisconsin Dells. Right. How much money were you guys pulling in that almost kept Robin Zander away from Cheap Trick? Uh, you know what? It, 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 our contract didn't really 
keep him away from anything. We had planned uh, in 74, I, I, I had said, you know, we're either going to be uh, famous by the end of this year. We'd done everything. We'd, we'd been to Europe a few times just banging around trying to make contacts. And I said, well, I'm going to do something else if we're not famous by the end of 74. And and come November, I opened up a bar and he joined Cheap Trick. It was kind of like foretold. Cheap Trick's manager, Ken Adaman, used to bring uh, all sorts of different bands up to the Dells. Kind of, we didn't know this at the time, but shopping for a singer, and they'd look at both of us. You know, they had kind of agreed on Robin, and because you know, this is something I haven't mentioned often, but I'm basically the reason that Cheap Trick is together because nobody, Robin didn't know Bunny until I introduced him, you know? Oh, and wow. Then, and then when Cheap Trick started to, to develop, uh, they did, Robin did go to Rockford and rehearse with him sometimes in 73, and there was different uh, versions. There was Fuse. I mean, he was, I remember seeing him play in a band that had Bunny and Craig Myers from Fuse, the lead guitar player. And they were doing things at the time, like rock and roll versions of, of Tony Bennett's If I Ruled the World and, and all kinds of things that uh, seemed really interesting at the time. Rick was the leader of, of uh, Cheap Trick all, all the way along, and and he wanted Rob, and he, he was going to get him, you know, and he, everybody knew he was going to get him, you know. So. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. So I opened up this bar, and got married and he went ahead and charged all over the world with Cheap Trick. You know. We kept in contact. It wasn't easy because, like I said, he was gone all the time. You know. But he would call up once in a while when he had his first kid. He invited me to Rockford and he was moving from an apartment to a, a house that he'd bought and wanted me to help fix up the nursery for his uh, wife to bring the baby home. So we, we hung out. No, you know, it was kind of interesting. He had a great big, beautiful apartment on the on the river in Rockford, Rock River Towers, uh, all glass, seventh floor, overlooking the river. And and when I got there, the only thing in the in the place were was a a white uh, upright piano, a shiny uh, one of the glossy white Yamaha, and and there were about. I would say eight or ten Rickenbacker guitars just laying on the floor all over the house because there was no furniture left. He'd already moved all that. And I said, "Well, let me have one of these. I got guitars that I, you know, I can't even keep, keep tuned up, you know." And he's got so many of them just laying on the floor. <laughs> he didn't give me one though. <laughs> wow. They weren't really his property. They belonged to the band, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Is it hard to make arrangements with yourself? 
And we, we we get together whenever we could, uh, whenever he was around. And I, you know, I went backstage at every concert that, you know, that I could. And it was uh, it was really fun to watch. And everybody kind of thought that, you know, because they played for hundreds and hundreds of nights around the Midwest before they ever caught on and made a record. You know, they they played uh, from from fall of '74 to. Uh, Late '76, when their first record came out, they just pounded it in the bars, you know. Uh-huh. Learned their trade real well. Robin wasn't the, wasn't the rock and roll singer that he, he that he shaped up into at uh, in Cheap Trick, you know. He was he was made to uh, kind of be part of the image, you know. There was that be- two good-looking guys and two two geeks, you know, <laughs> and and they played on that. Robin became a real real heartthrob around. Well, um, if it makes you up, feel yeah. any better today, you're the heartthrob. BJ and I are the geeks. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not a heartthrob anymore. But the last time I did anything musically was Robin was um, they, when they did the Sergeant Pepper live in Las Vegas. She called me up and asked me to be a background singer. Oh wow! And uh, so I was in 2009. Went out to Vegas, all expenses paid, and they actually paid me to do the show and put me up in the Hilton where the show was for 17 days. I, got to, I sat right next to Jeff Emmerich, the producer of the Beatles, and not wow. the producer, the, tech, the recording tech of all the Beatles records, and we practiced all the background harmony parts for Sgt. Pepper, and, and I'm sitting right next to him for 10 hours. The first day we rehearsed, we rehearsed for the background singers for 10 hours with him and the orchestra leader, and, and he had notes, laminated pages, of notes that he had made during the actual recording of Sgt. Pepper's that he was referring to. That was kind of neat. Being a big Beatle fan, that was real neat. Yeah, that had to be a rush. Yeah. It was hard hard work, too, because there was a lot. I thought I knew those songs until we got into the real minutia of of, uh, the background harmonies, you know? Oh, absolutely. we we were tired and we were we were there was six background vocalists and we uh, we practiced a lot. I'll bet that there are things that you heard working on that that you've never picked up on when you listen to the album. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like one place, I think it was at uh, fixing a hole. You know, you can hear that. We always heard the ooh mm-hmm. part in the background, but at one point they were actually saying "fooly fools." You know, and and he had that in his notes, and so that's what we did. We sang, you know, it sounded like ooh, but it was actually, you know, just minutia like that that was actually pretty difficult. I'm 
I'll tell you an interesting story that happened out there. During, um, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, we're in rehearsal with, with Chief Trick, and Robin came up to the little loft where we sang, and he asked me to sing a double him, double his uh, vocal, lead vocal on, on the lead line in being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. And so that, I was honored, and I, and I said, okay. So we did it that way, and... Uh, during dress rehearsal, we were just about to go on. Jeff Emmerich comes up to me and says, you know, because Robin never sang it the same way twice. It was really hard for us to sync up. I got asked by Jeff Emmerich to not sing. He said, but go ahead and mouth the words so if Robin looks up here, he'll think you're, you are singing. <laughs> so I was asked, asked by the Beatles uh, recording engineer to not sing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was kind of a... A low point for me, but uh, yeah, but it was still all, all part of all part of the fun, you know. That was a song that we didn't actually ever play the two of us, so we didn't have any real blend, you know, in that one. And so I I did the best to sing it the way I thought it should go, and he did too, and and it didn't sync up, so he asked me to not sing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, there's the old joke about that we we charge so much to play and we charge double to rehearse, and you couldn't afford if we don't play. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's pretty good. You were at like the residency where they did it for a while. I only did the show at the Las Vegas Hilton. Yes, yes, they did, that's they did the, nine yes. days there. That's the one, and uh, they were kind of every other day, and so I got out there five days earlier for rehearsal and and did all the shows, and then came home. It was. It was really magic, you know. That is amazing. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds amazing. That is fantastic. It's twenty-seven piece orchestra, and Cheap Trick and uh, Jeff Emmerich did say one, at one point that uh, the way Cheap Trick did Sgt. Pepper's made the Beatles doing Sgt. Pepper's sound like it was a demo, you know, because wow. because they they rocked so hard, you know. For, they did it the way the Beatles did it, but Cheap Trick was just in there in between the. Bunny and Tom, there was just such a, such a huge groove to lay everything on top of, you know.
Now there's a myth, and you can clear up if, if this is reality in any sort of way or if it's just one of those legends that develop over time. Uh, supposedly Robin ran into Rick, Tom, and Bunny in a bar in France when Robin was backpacking across Europe and sick men of Europe were turning there, possibly with no, Stooky. That's that's all myth. That's, they invented a they invented a little mystique for the uh -huh. band when they uh, came out with the first record, and and there was uh, you know all the fact Bunny was a Venezuelan businessman yeah. and all that, <laughs> you know, but they were all uh, dopes from Rockford that uh, that made rock and roll a priority, and that's you know that's just not as interesting as backpacking through Europe and of running course. into a band. And <laughs> but that would make for one hell of an album title, Dopes from Rockford. I think that would be pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> well, I they like did that make an album called Rockford. But yeah, yeah. No, Robin and I went over to... My my girlfriend, who became my first wife, was uh, from Scotland. We went over to... She thought that some of her dad's friends could help us. So we went over in the fall of uh, 73 and Spent a couple months over there, and we did get down to London and do that recording, like I said, with, uh, I can't even remember the guy's name now. We had a publishing company and a production company and some high-rise in western London and put us in the, the big studio where the London Symphony Orchestra recorded every every week, and, and we played and recorded, and we played in some bars in uh, Newcastle and Walls End and different places in in England, you know, which is was kind of cool because we thought the kids were so, you know, because the Beatles were from there, we just assumed that they were way hipper than us. But they, they they were just kids and they loved the Beatles songs and we and we knew how to play them all, so <laughs> we were a hit. So back when you were in high school with Zeno and Robin, um, was that the same time that Rick and Tom had the Grim Reapers and Bunny had was his band the the Pagans. The Pagans. So were yeah, you aware of was, all those bands too? Yeah, they were the best bands in Rockford, and they were. They played at a place called Sherwood Lodge, which was a you know just a kind of a great big open pavilion. They had battles of the bands pretty regularly, one band at one end and the other band at the other end, and whoever got the biggest cheer got bigger money for the night. And it was. Uh, you know, I remember Robin and I both going to see. Uh, the Grim Reapers, when uh, Rick was always just a step ahead of everybody as far as fashion and and sounds and listening to different groups than everybody else, and and we, we I remember one time we saw him on his birthday and we were maybe fifty feet from the stage and he was had a strobe light going and they were doing uh, I think My Generation by the Who and he put his guitar up on top of his amp and just let it feed back and he started eating birthday cake. Uh, you know, on the stage, uh, and <laughs> it was throwing it around. So we were like 50 feet away at least, and we could feel pieces of cake and crumbs landing on us. And you know what I mean? And 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 every once in a while, the drummer would uh, uh, would uh, reach over and, hit and bang on Rick's strings, so it kept on feeding back all the way through. You know, it's just a uh, Grim Reapers were a great, great band, and then and then Fuse developed out of that. You know, right. And Bunny Carlos was really kind of the only good thing about uh, the other band, the Pagans. They they did have a record out, local, uh, you know, local band makes good, but um, the Grim Reapers were way better as far as I could think. And yeah, they, so we we did have a 
and a knowledge of these guys and through going up through school. But it wasn't until I went to Rock Valley College in fall uh, fall of uh, 1970, and I that I actually met Bunny and hung out, you know. And then I brought Robin into the picture for our band and playing the middle school rec nights all through the winter. We made nineteen dollars a man. There was five of us, so I think it was like. <laughs> $95 for the band to play uh, three hours and haul our equipment around in the snow. And what was that band called that was you and, and we call, We just called it Friends, F-E-R-E-N-Z. And there were some tapes around of that uh, for a long time, but they, they just disintegrated, you know. So. Oh, right. wow. I see Bunny now because he has a band play that plays in, in Rockford still on Monday nights, you know. Right. If you it, still have those tapes... We might no, be I don't have those tapes. Oh, oh, Besides, they were, they were really crummy recordings to begin with because we were so loud and we didn't know anything about how to re- record things at the time. You know, this was right. 1970. Right. So we recorded them on a reel-to-reel tape recorder, but there was no way we could turn it down low enough to not have it be distorted and rumbling as we that band was, was loud. And, wow. And we did a lot of early cream things and... And uh, Rod's stuff off of Rod Stewart's Gasoline Alley. And I played a little keyboard and sang, and then Robin was the lead singer. It says in the Cheap Trick book that Robin's first band was called The Destinations. Is that correct? Yeah, there was a, he was in a group called The Destinations, and he was in a group before that called The, the Butterscotch Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> S-U-N-D-A-Y. You know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he was always the lead singer, but you know, he he was never that great of a uh, player. He still admits he's not much of you know. He he's good, but he's he's not a lead guitar player or, or like that. So he could strum and sing though, and that's what he was really good at that. So. So as as the story goes, Zeno left Cheap Trick of his own accord. But uh, you said that Rick, you think Rick always wanted to get Robin in the band. Yeah, so. that was. A, and I think I, I don't know this for sure, but I think Robin suggested Zeno, you know, to fill in till he could do it because he, you know, he knew of this, another singer, and so um, Zeno became a. Uh, the, and his name is Randy Hogan. He went to school with us and. Yep. And he has a really, a really good voice. Uh, but Robin was their, uh, their darling. You know, he, he was the one. Rick was impressed the fact that he could do everything from, you know, this, this softest Neil Young things to, uh, you know, screaming out. Uh, uh, we, we used to do uh, uh, sympathy for the devil. And what, what else do we do? To, you know, a lot of the, the Lennon things we were doing stuff off Lennon's, Lennon's first solo album like Mother and, and where he's screaming and Robin was a screamer but he wasn't just a screamer you know so do you think Zeno was more of a placeholder and it was inevitable that Robin was going to be in Cheap Trick yeah that's that's the way I think it, you know I'm pretty sure that's the way it happened because they had they had asked Robin to do it and he was only c- committed to uh, our thing at the Dells until Labor Day of 74 and so they so they went out and banged around it with uh with Zeno to, to keep busy and make some money and yeah i think and i still see Zeno quite a lot too you know so i mean he's he's definitely not bitter or anything he's he's friends with all of us too you know right well it, it, it seems like nobody's really bitter like there's no bad blood no i, I mean i i really i, I kind of lived my life for a lot of years thinking that i would eventually when robin did try at different times to uh set me up in a solo situation or, or put some guys together uh, for with, for a band for me but but like I said he just he just couldn't give it the the attention and uh, 
or anything that, that it really took to do that. So I kind of stayed on hold for about one time he called me up and said he wanted to use one of my songs on that solo album he did uh, back in the 80s. And, and he wanted me to come up with an arrangement of a song that he liked that I wrote. And then I wrote a, a whole bunch of other songs thinking that he would uh, like something else as well, you know. So, right. so it kept me busy uh, you know, being the best uh, player and singer that I could be. Right. Just for the for the whatever the right time would be, it would happen. You know, it didn't happen, and I wasn't all that disappointed because I sure couldn't do it the way they did it. I sh- you know I wasn't willing to put in three hundred nights a year on the road. And, yeah, and uh, and I had a family, and was, I couldn't move to New York or L.A. and really pursue a career. So. Um, I didn't feel bad because I kept on uh, st- uh, staying sharp. I mean, I played uh, down in Florida. I, when I started my solo career in the 80s, you know, I, I went down to Florida and played in the wintertime and up in the Dells in the summer, and it was just a real good life, you know. And I still play. I'm still a musician, you know, so I wouldn't have probably have been if uh, things had gone differently, you know. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't, I couldn't hold anything against him for not doing it because you know he's. It was still. I got so much out of the fact that he got uh, famous. You know, I mean, there was a whole lot of residual tension that came to me because, you know, at least locally here, because uh, he did well, and and I was a big time fan of their music too. So everything was good. No, no room for bitterness. You know. Good. Time it was, lights were down, down, down. I leaned back on my radio, oh, oh. Some cat was laying down some rock and roll, now the sun was in. And the lights on, it seemed to back, hey, hey. Came back like a slow boy's on a wave of night. There were no DJ, that was hazy, cosmic jam. There's a star-man waiting in the sky He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'd know our mind There's a star-man waiting in the sky He told us not to blow it, but he knows it's all about it Let the children lose that, let the children lose that But all the children who get Your window, you can see his light. If we can sparkle, he may land tonight. Jump your teeth, or he'll get us locked up in pride. There's a star man waiting in the sky. He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'd blow our mind. There's a star man. 
are you into now? Is there anybody that grabs your attention? Well, I still have uh, 90 or 100 <laughs> Beatles songs on my song list. And, yeah. But I, when I was down in Florida, I played for uh, parent, uh, my, people my parents' age for most of the time, you know, because it was Florida. And, and so I'd, I learned a lot of Sinatra and Tony Bennett and, and uh, all the dance music like that. Yeah. Well, it's weird because I myself am a huge Beatle fan, and to me that's like where everything else is underneath right. that tree. You know, even Cheap Trick, for example. Mm-hmm. But it's weird, as you get older, you can kind of appreciate like where Sinatra and Tony Bennett and those guys were coming from. You know, like there was a time I never would have listened to that stuff, you know. Right, and I listened to a lot of soul <laughs> music that I wouldn't have known a thing about if, if, if the Beatles hadn't done uh, Smokey Robinson and, you know... They opened the door to a lot of different kinds of music in their first few records, and it it took me years to to get to know that stuff, you know. Right, right. Uh, is there a particular favorite Cheap Trick album or Cheap Trick era that you enjoy? Um, well, I, was, I always probably played the first album most, but I also liked the one that George Martin did, um, All Shook Up, and... That had to be a big thrill for them. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, and that was. Uh, um, I liked them all really. There was something redeeming about all. I didn't like the doctor much, or one on one. They did all these drippy kind of uh, uh, effects on their voices and you know, on the voices in that one. That, but I mean, all the singles. Just everything works if you let it, and if you want my love, and all those songs were, you know, big time fun. I do some cheap trick, you know, in my show when people ask for it. I don't, I don't do it unless they ask for it because it's it's special to the ones who ask for it, right? And it's not particularly uh, good stuff for the most of the crowds that I play for. I mean, it's. I play for a lot of people my age and just younger that that, that love cheap tricks and what they song like it do, when I do it. What what song do people usually ask for? Uh, you know, I I do surrender and want you to want me and I do the flame and uh, um, and if it comes down to it, I can do uh, big eyes and uh, and Alvita Zane and, and lots of them, you know. 
All great stuff. All great yeah. stuff. Yeah. So do you do you have any good stories from the early like seeing Cheap Trick early on, like back to like seventy four, seventy five, and how how people reacted to them? Were they were they a pretty odd band for the time, or just kind of weird or out there? No, listen. Here's here's a pretty good story to to tell how things went. Um, they would go into a, a place in Madison, and on a day's notice. People who would drive for from 50, like we did, for 50 miles away. Uh-huh. Uh, when we were young, we would drive just about anywhere when we heard they were playing because it was going to be that kind of a scene, you know. Right. And well, the first few times that I saw them in in Madison in, in bars and they were all these people, everybody assumed that they were the next big thing because Rick was and Fuse was, you know, ever well known amongst the musicians and and, and Ken had a man he was an established uh, manager and producer in Madison so it was always packed it was always just jam packed in fact they would give uh, some of the bigger bars they would pay them to play there and then take the door and make a fortune you know uh-huh. But I remember the feeling of going, this is just a few months after Rob and I had played for four years together, you know, like we're like brothers, and all of a sudden I, I go to hear them in Madison, and the spotlight's on him, and and nobody even knows who I am, you know, because yeah. it's all it's all cheap trick, and, and Robin's now part of that. It wasn't, his, uh, it wasn't his intent to make me, you know, to shut me out or anything, but it just happened, you know. Yeah, they wanted to focus on on him and on the band. So uh, no, they were always uh, mainstream at the time. They weren't. They weren't out at all. And uh, the name of this tune is called uh, uh, "The Ballad of Richard Speck," and uh, it's coming to the ten-year anniversary. Of, we don't uh, condone or uh, condemn the poor man, but uh, here's the. T- Oh, I need to die. I need to die. I need to die. 
Well, it's probably good that Rick stopped eating cake on stage. He might have gained a lot yeah, more weight, you know. Yeah, but he was always he was always strange. I mean, he would at certain places you would if he had a, like a drop ceiling, he'd he'd take his guitar and break out tiles in the ceiling. And, uh, <laughs> I, re- I remember uh, one time that Tom broke a, a string on his bass, and to fill time, Rick took us around like on a tour of the everything on the stage, you know, showing us the amps and the and, and he said these are he had these sound city amplifiers that everybody wished they could have, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he had to find they always had the finest equipment and clothes and everything. Anyway, he goes and 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 he said now look at the back of this speaker and he just shoved it off uh, onto the floor and let it flip towards the audience on the stage, you know. It knocked his own speaker off the top of a stack, and, and now see the back of the speaker now that you know he's just killing time the best he can, and he was always you know pretty whacked. So <laughs> that's Rick. I remember his dad had a music store in Rockford, and and uh, Rick, we'd go down there. Just Rick was always the first one in town to have like he first one to have leather pants. First one to wear paisley pants, and then he was a you know a few years older than us, and and had been around, and and uh, so he was he was a trendsetter, and then he first one to have orange amplifiers and, and Sound City amplifiers and all the best equipment. His dad owned a music store, you know, helped him use get get all the best stuff. What do you think it was about his attitude that basically? I mean, he, he, he wasn't going to take no for an answer, in a sense, as far as... Uh, no, uh, like he says, they, they were single-minded. They only wanted to do one thing. Him and Bunny, for example, were not social people at all. They wouldn't, didn't miss anything about high school dances and dating and things like that. They just didn't... Well, they must have felt bad about it, but they didn't really... Um, try to do that. I mean, Rick. Rick was never had a girlfriend. Bunny never had a girlfriend ever. It was just rock and roll all the time. They played when everybody else was going out. And they wind up being the band that everybody was going out to hear. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, and they and they just they, they worked hard at it. You know, mm-hmm. they had a they had a vision, and Rick, although he's He's kind of half crazy. He wasn't crazy. He knew what was working, and he would t- and he would just keep doing that. You know, yeah. Find out what works and keep doing it. That is excellent. And then Grim, Grim Reapers actually played up in Madison. Um, that's where they met Ken, Ken Adam, and he was producing shows. And they they were on the bill with Otis Redding on the night that Otis Redding died. Right. They were supposed to be. They opened up for. They were going to open up for Otis Redding in Madison on the day he died. Yeah. Um, Well, EJ, is there anything else you think we should cover, or do you think we kind of hit everything we need to? No. Yeah, this has been great. Are there any other stories, Brian, that you that you can think of that you'd like to tell, or? Um. Yeah. uh, Um. Robin and I would, <laughs> we were naive enough to think that at the time, this is a summer of um, 71 or 2, some guys who were stationed at an army base just north of the Dells here, 
uh, came down and hung out quite a lot, a lot. They were reservists, and, and they were from Denver. And he said, hey, when you get done playing here, come on up to Denver. I'll get you a job. So, you know, and years go by, and you, and you take that with a grain of salt. But we were young and naive, and we went. And we didn't even tell them we were coming until we got to Denver. And uh, it just turned out that these guys were on the level, and they uh, took us to Aspen, Colorado, and put us up in a condo, all expenses paid for, I don't know, a week. Had a sauna in the uh, front room, and, a, and we were at the foot of a, uh, a cool ski hill, and, and they, um, they set us up auditions, and we played in four or five different bars in Aspen. And one of the, uh, one of the jobs we had was at the Aspen Inn, and we played in, in between sets of this big 10-piece rock and roll band called Stoneground, who had some uh, Bo Brummels and some uh, um, some of the original cast of Hair, and just a great band. And they went out there and rock and rolled for 50 minutes, and then we would come out with two acoustic guitars and doing 15 minutes on their breaks, and we just died. They hated us. And one night a guy actually came up from the audience, walked across the dance floor in front of us, and stood on his head in front of us in the lotus position, just like saying, you guys are so bad. You know, and we were trying to be hip and do our Neil Young and our, but once again, the Beatles saved us at the end of that gig. We just said, what the hell, let's just play you know, what we like. And we played the Beatles and they loved us. <laughs> so, so you, you never know, man. You try to be. We tried to a couple times. We tried to out hip our, ourselves, you know. And instead of doing what we what we were good at, we were doing, you know, trying to be cool, you know. Well, there's a big. List. Anyway, we we had a couple of those where we where we just completely died, and, but most of the time, everybody just really loved us for. For the stuff we did, and we were real close to the original on, on all the songs and music we played. We, we we were real good mimics. He still is. Yeah, I think a lot of times he's he's mimicking himself even because uh, you know they've done it so long and so many nights, you know. Yeah, well, they call him the man of a thousand voices. So yeah, yeah, whatever it takes, he could do it. Absolutely. Well, well it's been fun. I've been I've enjoyed talking to you guys. Maybe we could do volume two sometime. We would. I'll get, I, I didn't actually prepare anything to talk about, so because I didn't think I needed to. But I mean, I, there's a lot of a lot of good stories that. Uh, well, Brian, and there was a there was a time when when Cheap Trick was making their name, that that I you know I could have you know come out and said uh, um, you know what about me, but. I was playing along with the. They had to create some mystique, and and Robin assured me at several different intervals, you know, that uh, when they had established themselves, you know, the truth would come out, and and uh, like they did this the Rolling Stone interview, and he got so close to saying, you know, my name, and I could have had my name in, in a, a big time article for Cheap Trick, and but it didn't happen. And I asked him one time. I said, what? Don't you tell them about me? He says, I, I mention you every time, but they print what they're going to print. and You know what I mean? It gets yeah. modified and edited and, 
and um, the idea was to have these guys have this mysterious background that you know they had to stay true to that story and that's uh that's the way it worked makes sense but thanks thanks for finding me and uh thanks for letting me uh, remember some uh, really good old memories thank well, you yeah it's been great it's been great yeah we definitely want to thank you because as fans we want to know all these hidden things. We want to know all these little details, and people like you are going to be filling them in for us, and we would love to have you on the show again. Okay, good enough. Okay. That'll be fantastic. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank well, you uh, very much. Bye-bye. Bye, right. Brian. You are my don't take my sunshine away Come on! The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping I dreamt I held you in my arms When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken And I hung my head and cried Everybody! You are my sunshine You are my sunshine My only sunshine You make me happy When skies are gray When skies are gray You'll never know You'll never know I'm a Please don't take my sunshine away. Oh, baby. That's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap tricking. To bring on Chief Trick, I'm sure you've been waiting this uh, the highlight of the afternoon, right, folks? You people waking up now, huh? Huh? Okay, we gotta make. Holy shit, that's up. I gotta make a couple of announcements again. Remember, beer is a no no. That's what they say. So, uh, no beer in the park, folks, and, uh. <laughs> that's what they say, too. On Thursdays. Anyway, so, and, uh, I hate to talk like it sounds like a. a First grade school teacher, but uh, we don't want to upset the uh, the police department. And so far, everybody has been fantastic. Give yourselves a hand because first of all, I've been sitting and waiting during our breaks and everything. And then uh, there, there's probably the myth going around that uh, you know people around the neighborhood may be thinking, "My, there are a bunch of freaky people just destroying the park, and uh, you're just conducting yourselves perfectly, as far as I can tell." So give yourselves a hand for being fine people. You understand? Come on, come on, move it. If you don't move, you're gonna fall asleep. But do we think?
Okay, a couple other things. Uh, Charlotte's Web, Wednesday and Thursday, May 14 and 15, uh, 7 and 10 o'clock, Mason Profit at Charlotte's Web. And you can get your tickets for that at Ray Johnson's. And also, uh, oh, one other announcement, Margaret Hecker, meet your sister at the uh, WROK Treasure Truck. And uh, make sure you take off the hawk suit before you go over there. Uh, plug the t-shirts one more time. <laughs> Fine. Uh, over here in the uh, van, which is now covered with people, <laughs> there are t-shirts for sale over there commemorating the Mother's Day concert today for your mothers. And uh, you can pick them up over there and help defray the cost of the concert since the concert is free. So if you can buy one, it helps us out, all right? All right. You ready, Rick? Formerly a long time ago, the Grim Reapers at one time, right? Then, then Fuse. And now, better than ever, uh, these, these people are going to be appearing. Get these, get, these people don't play in, in, in basements somewhere in a corner street, folks. May 22nd, Capital City Theater in Madison, Wisconsin. Chief Trick is going to be playing with Lou Reed, your uh, electric animal person. And uh, day after that, May 23rd, with Lay Variations. And uh, that's going to be at the Deloitte College Fieldhouse. You can take it to those at Straight Johnson's. And they go on sale tomorrow, I believe. So uh, I want to hear a real loud uh, round of applause for these people. I want to hear screaming. I want to hear it. Why don't you stand up or something? All right. Rick Nielsen, a cheap trick. Come on.